This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast. I'm Jeff Jones coming to you from Utah this week, founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the books, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. Greetings. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Happy Monday. Hey there, <laughs> hey there Jethro. Our guest disappeared on this. Hey, it happens, man. I mean, it technology. does happen. Not doing a podcast for a month. I mean... This is, this is how it goes. <laughs> well, while we wait for our guests to reconnect with us, uh, let me tell folks that we have invited onto the podcast today Professor Axton Betts Hamilton, who is an expert in child identity theft. And one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to her today is that she became interested in this field after discovering that a family member had actually stolen her identity. And she uh, took the research that she did and the 
investigation she conducted and wrote this really interesting book called The Less People Know About Us, which I finished last night and what just found absolutely fascinating in terms of the uh, impact it had on our life, the revelations that she makes in the course of, of writing this book. So anyway, inspired by her experience and her effort to clean up her credit history, which she first learned about when she went to college, uh, she went off and got a master's degree in consumer sciences and retailing, and then she got a PhD in human development and family studies. So she concentrates on child identity theft and financial exploitation. Uh, she lectures really around the country on these issues, and she's currently serving on the faculty of South Dakota State University. So, you know, within a few hundred miles out in your neck of the woods there, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty much right in between us. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a big, it's a big country. So anyway, um, that is what we're hoping to talk about today. And hopefully Professor uh, Betts Hamilton will be able to reconnect with us. We're doing one of our many remote location podcasts today. So yeah. uh, let us see if we can uh, get in touch with her and yep. see what's going on. Her internet crashed, so she's going to connect by phone. So that's okay. She'll be okay. She'll be back with us in just a moment, I'm sure. Excellent. We'll have an update on that. So you know, this is one of these things where, uh, you know, again, from a researching perspective, um, there are so many different potential sources of guests for us, right? Yeah. And I think this one actually arose out of some research I was doing into identity theft for some of the projects we're working on. And she was quoted in, I think, a Washington Post article uh, about these issues. And so I reached out to her and she was gracious enough to join us, uh, hopefully, <laughs> um, in terms of uh, this podcast. So, you know, look, I think that, you know, it's really her story to tell. And I want to make sure that she has a chance to do so. But the vulnerability of children to identity theft, Jethro, is something we've talked about. And we've had a number of guests make suggestions about uh, things like having parents lock down their mm -hmm. children's credit report to make it harder for you know this kind of thing to happen to someone. So we do have Professor Betts Hamilton back, Axton, good to see you again. And so I was just doing the intro about your professional credentials, the fact that you published this book. I think I tracked you down through the Washington Post yeah. uh, for an article that you got quoted in. So I guess what we'll do is uh, throw it to you and okay. have you tell us a little bit about the book and your experience and how that led you to the professional career you have now. Okay, sure. So first, I, I want to apologize. Um, my internet here at home decided to go out right as we were starting, so, which is not convenient for a show. So I apologize. I'm doing this by my by a cell phone right now. So if the picture's not the greatest or the, or the audio's not the greatest, I apologize. Oh, it's but all fine. We, we yeah, have uh, we've jumped through a lot of technological hoops over the past couple of years. <laughs> okay. Well, so to answer your question, um, again, I'm an assistant professor of consumer affairs at South Dakota State University. And my career journey started really through my experience as an identity theft victim and through my parents' experiences as identity theft victims, which started, and this makes me feel old, Almost 30 years ago, um, started in 1993, 
And at that time, I, be, I, I had been told that both of my parents' identities had been stolen. So someone was stealing their mail. And back at that time, we lived in the country and, you know, early 90s, rural Indiana, you know, your mailbox was out by the side of the road. It wasn't secure. Anybody could drive by and get in there and take what they wanted. Mm. And we assumed that that was what was going on, or at least that's what mom said. And <laughs> therein you know, lies the story. <laughs> right, right. And, um, you know, as time went on, the identity thefts got more involved and more sophisticated where for example someone had opened a checking account in mom's name and was writing bad checks and one of those checks was written to the local walmart and the sheriff's deputy came to arrest her when i was 15 and dad explained it was part of the identity theft and convinced the sheriff's deputy that my mom didn't do this that this is, this is all a mistake. And the sheriff's deputy left. And, um, you know, our electricity was shut off for non-payment. Um, our gas was nearly shut off for non-payment. Luckily, dad knew the tech that was there to shut off the gas. And again, identity theft and the tech believed him because dad knew this, this tech personally. And this tech said, you, you paid your bills, you know, this, mm-hmm. this, of course, this is identity theft. You're not that kind of person. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not that kind of person. And, you know, through this experience, I wanted to get away from it, you know, because we knew that the person responsible for the identity theft was likely someone very close to us. So it could be an extended family member. It could be a friend of the family. So we withdrew from those relationships. And so there's really no source of support. You know, there wasn't really anyone to vent to about this. And we had to play like everything's normal because we don't want to tip off the identity thief. And you do that to a you know, 15, 16, 17 year old kid. They want to get out. You know, there's, you're not allowed to talk to anybody. There's no home phone. This is back before cell phones were, you know, a thing for everybody. And, and I if, wanted to go. I, I apologize, Axon, but but actually, there's an important point here too. I think, which is that, you know, when when you first when your family first started to experience these financial oddities that didn't make sense to you as a kid, the concept of identity theft wasn't really that prevalent at the time, right? I mean, because oh no, you... nobody knew what identity theft was back in the early to mid '90s. In yeah. fact, the yeah. first law that protected, or I guess not protected, but identify consumers as the victim was not enacted until 1998 you know prior to that time the financial institutions that uh you know were out the money for credit cards and other things that were paid they were the victims not the people whose names (laughs) were in social security numbers were misused wow okay so then you know you you see this stuff happening if i recall from your book you're having this debate with your parents about where you're going to go to college. I mean, you've already had high school debates. There were challenges built into that, but that college decision was a big one for you. Oh, it was, it was. So, you know, I grew up in Eastern Indiana. So East Central Indiana, um, if anyone's familiar with that, I grew up Northeast of Muncie. And Muncie is the home of Ball State. And that's where my mom went to college. You know, nothing against Ball State, but I, you know, my my dad's thought was, well, you could live at home and drive. And 
no so still not talk to anybody you know still not you know trust anybody you know not go to study groups I mean this is what I was thinking my future was going to be this is more of the same and I had been accepted to Purdue University which was in western Indiana and it was a challenge to in particular convince my dad that this was the right choice for me because again it was far you know at the time it was perceived to be far away it was two hours away from home mm-hmm. you know for me now in my 40s, two hours is not a big deal, but back then it was a big <laughs> deal. And it took some arm twisting and a, a campus visit for my dad to say, okay, you can, you, you can go here. Part of the issue was that I was going early. So the high school that I attended had at that time, they don't have it anymore. They had a seven semester graduation option where if you fulfilled all the requirements, after seven semesters of high school, you could leave. You could quote graduate. Now you didn't technically graduate until May, but you could leave and do whatever you wanted. Most right, right. students <laughs> who graduated just went directly to the workforce. You know, they met their requirements, they were done with high school, yep. just went straight to the workforce. I may have been the first or at least one of the very few who took the seven semester graduation option and went directly to college. Mm. So, and, you know, with my teachers and my guidance counselor, there was a bit of hesitation there because I was breaking the mold. In, in, right. You know, and I'm, I may not have been the first one to take the seven semester graduation option and go, uh, and go to college, but I think I was the first one to go, quote, away to college. You know, I didn't, right. I didn't just- go to the local community college. I didn't go to Ball State. I went away. And so I was violating a norm there. So that was a whole thing too. <laughs> but I persisted. So- so this idea of going off to Purdue, right? I mean, that that two-hour distance, you know, given the the cloistered childhood that you describe in your book, that that's a big break. And I'm curious because it's right around then that it seems you requested your credit report as an yep. adult, and that seems obviously to have been a huge trigger in in this issue for you. It was. So I spent my first semester and I think another semester in the residence halls and residence hall living, as I tell my students at South Dakota State, is not for everybody. You know, and don't feel bad if it's not for you. And it wasn't for me. And I got my first off-campus apartment and it was a little dungeony apartment, you know, 70s wood paneling with nail holes in the walls. And you open the door and it's like walking into a cave. But I was proud of it because it was mine. <laughs> I was bringing my two cats with me from home. So they were going to live with me. And yeah, I was excited. And I called the electric company to establish service. And they told me the date and time they would be there. Or not be there, but switch the service over to my name. And I thought things were going well. Okay, this is moving along. You know, getting things set up in this apartment. And they sent me a letter a few days later that said, we need a hundred dollar deposit due to your credit score. Yeah. And I thought it was because I didn't have one, right? I'm right, 19, right. you know, I don't have a credit score or I shouldn't. And, you know, I, at that time I had a couple of student loans in my name that weren't in repayment status. So, okay, that's the issue. I've, I, you know, I've got, I've got some credit, but I don't have a payment history. Maybe that's the issue. So I, I called the number at the bottom of the letter to get a copy of my credit report because I didn't know really what a credit report was. And again, that, you know, that kind of creepy, what's this entity and what report are they keeping on me? You know, how dare they kind of thing. 
And six weeks later, it arrived in the mail. And I remember seeing the large manila envelope sticking out of my mailbox at my apartment complex. And I got the envelope and I noticed it was really thick. And I thought credit reports must come with a lot of instructions and disclosures. They must be really hard to read. And like tax forms, right? You get right, right. Like, you know, there's a whole booklet to give you the directions on how to fill out a tax form. Well, that's kind of how I felt with this. And because I thought, no, my my credit report's not that thick. You know, it should be half a page with name, address, and two student loan entries and, and done. You know, this should have been, you know, a regular size envelope. And um, I got into my apartment, sat down on my twice handed down floral print couch from the 60s, just to give you a little bit of the visual, in the dark wood paneled <laughs> apartment and opened, my, opened the envelope, saw that my credit report uh, was 10 pages long and there weren't instructions and disclosures, but it was, you know, wow. a, a term paper worth of fraudulent credit card entries and associated collection agency entries that dated back to the time that my parents' identities had been stolen in 1993. And it was at that point, it could be safely assumed that the person responsible for my identity theft was also responsible for theirs. Right, wow. That's a, that, that must've been a brutal moment. It was, and you know, I remember they, they sent a copy of my credit score with the report. Yeah. And it said, your credit score is 380. Well, it, you know, when you're in school, 100 is perfect, right? You know, 100%, 100 points. So I'm like, oh, 380, that's almost four times as perfect. Wow, that's awesome. And then I looked a little more carefully and saw the little bell curve and yeah. underneath the bold, your credit score is 380. And my credit score was in the second percentile of all credit scores in the nation at that point. So no, it was not anywhere near, you know, four times as perfect like I thought at 19. That's how naive I was at 19. Well, and, on, on, go ahead, Jeff. And I just think that because of you running from people who were trying to steal your parents' identity for so long and being in that position made you be more naive and not know what was really going on because you were secluding yourself from, from the rest of society. And, you know, it. this was a strategy by your parents, of course, to to deal with all of that and and how did you find out what what the source of all of this identity theft was what oh what gosh yeah. that led you to that <laughs> so um yeah skip ahead about you know what 14 years so this is a story that spanned 20 years of my life and you know through this experience i was frustrated by the lack of support, the lack of law enforcement response. And that's really how I, I got into identity theft research and teaching as a career. And um, I finished my uh, PhD in uh, human development and family studies from Iowa State in August of 2012. And the day that my degree was officially conferred was the day that my mom was diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoblastic leukemia. And um, I just finished my dissertation on child identity theft, you know, you know, had all this, you know, all, all this new knowledge. And um, I was a, uh, an assistant professor at a small university in Illinois at that time, you know, just starting out my career. And uh, my mom passed away 
on uh, February 12th of 2013. And on February 25th of 2013, my dad called me and he was just enraged about me running a credit card over limit back in 2001. And now this is 2013. He's talking about a credit card from 2001. And I don't even know what he's talking about. I said, dad, what are you talking about? I didn't I didn't do that. And he said, don't you lie to me. I have the credit card statement in my hand. And I went, wait a minute, what credit card statement is it? And he told me, and I said, well, dad, that was one of the credit cards that was taken out. And my name is part of the identity theft. And he said, well, it's in here in a file folder of your mom's with your birth certificate. And my blood ran cold because there's no logical reason for a credit card statement for an account that I didn't open to be in a file folder with my birth certificate. And I wanted to know what birth certificate this was because I had the original birth certificate, you know, the one that was handwritten huh. back in the eighties that it's like, wait a minute, wait, there's, there, there are so many pieces here that I, I don't quite understand. And dad kept telling me through this conversation that my mom's employer's logo. So where she worked at that time, was on the credit card statement. And I said, what do you mean? Like she faxed it to try and prove that this card wasn't mine? Like maybe she faxed it from work or something? He said, no, it's on the credit card statement. Hmm. And, you know, mom had just passed away. That wasn't registering with me. Like I, I could just could not get the visual in my head of what was really going on. <laughs> and I went home over spring break. Well, home to my parents' house. But at that time, at that point, my dad's house. And saw the credit card statement and my mom worked for um, an investment uh, services agency, essentially. Mm -hmm. And um, this credit card statement had the logo of that firm on really like it was part of the credit card statement. Like you would go to a representative of that firm, fill out a credit card application and get a credit card. But the investment firm didn't finance the credit card. It was through this other bank. And that was the bank that was showing up on my credit report. And so I did a little research on the uh, relationship between the bank and the investment firm and realized that at that time, this partnership did exist mm -hmm. where you could go in and get a credit card, you know, just walk into an investment representative's office and you know, fill out the credit card application, and here you go. That's this is what not, mom did. Yeah, this is not a process I'm really familiar with. I, like, does that still exist? Or I, I don't believe it exists as much today. I haven't seen a lot of it, and that's yeah. probably due to so much competition in the marketplace. But back in the late '90s, early 2000s, you know, this was a thing. You, you know, you walk yeah. into your small town um investment advisor's office and oh they offer credit cards too okay and you know you want a credit card well it's convenient you're right there you're talking finances anyway and that's what mom and, did and, mom, and the mom fact did. that she worked there made it even easier oh yeah and and kind of the insulting thing is she likely made a commission from the credit card sign up <laughs> my identity and likely made a commission from doing so ouch <laughs> but i think what what the issue was why that credit card statement and my birth certificate were in the same file is that credit card was issued, I believe in 2000. Yes, it was 2000. And I was at Purdue at that point. And so my address on my credit report 
didn't match the address that mom provided. And so the bank asked for additional verification that I was who I said I was. And so that birth certificate was issued by the county health department on June 7th of 2000. So mom just waltzed into the county health department, said, you know, I need a replacement birth certificate for my daughter, gave it to her. She likely faxed that to the bank. They said, okay, you are who you say you are. Continue forth with the credit card. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So this is just wild and, and unbelievable that you didn't know until after your mom passed that it was all her mm -hmm. the whole time. Um, so that's got to cause tons of conflicting issues. And I'm sure, you know, the therapies involved and all that stuff. But <laughs> the, the thing is, is like how, if somebody you don't know is stealing your identity, that's one thing. But if somebody you do know, like she can go get your birth certificate and, you know, continue doing this. Um, and a lot of times we talk about, you know, parents doing things to prevent their kids' identities getting stolen by somebody else. But there's really not much that you could do to prevent it um, if it's your own mom, right? I mean, there is, it seems like there's really nothing that could have been done besides maybe your dad taking a more active role in in this identity theft investigation from the very beginning, right? Right. And I, I do have to say dad did try, but mom was very very good with her manipulation of him and would say things like, well, you don't trust me and I'm handling it. And if you go to the police, it'll, it, it'll mess everything up and just very adamant, you know, to have it back off, you know, like, oh, okay. I trust you. You're, you're the financial guru in the family. You're the one with the bachelor's degree in finance, you know? Um, mm. So, you know, dad tried to be involved, but mom shut him down at every opportunity. And, Mom had a way of making you feel like the dumbest person alive if you questioned her on anything. At the very end of the book, you've got some interesting uh, material, probably not directly germane, but in terms of multiple personalities or, or schizophrenia as having played a role perhaps in mm -hmm. how your mother approached some of these issues and, and others as well. So one thing about my mom, you know, through the process of uh, talking to friends of the family that I hadn't spoken to in 20 or more years, uh, tracking down former friends of hers, uh, because when I, I should back up, I was able to get into her Facebook account and there was a whole fantasy life going on there. But unfortunately, not all of it was fiction. Um, mm -hmm. So there was at least one extramarital affair that was described in, in detail there that I, I did verify that it really did happen. Um, but, you know, these, these stories that, that she would make up and about my dad, and a little bit about me, mostly it was about my dad, but a little bit about me and, you know, just the total lack of empathy that she had for other suffering for, you know, consequences of even of her actions on other people, um, you know, wanting attention, you know, by dressing provocatively at, at different points, um, you know, really made me start to think, you know, what's the psychology behind this? And start reading about different psychological disorders. And, you know, one 
it maybe holds a little weight. I'm not sure how much is, is DID, dissociative identity disorder, which is the old multiple personality disorder. It's been renamed. And then antisocial personality disorder. Um, she had a lot of, of behavioral traits that are consistent with antisocial personality disorder. So lack of empathy, pathological lying, mom, mom let lies roll off her tongue and it, they were believable. And it wasn't just me and dad who believed them. It was her friends. You know, it, it was, you know, it was her coworkers. It's just, no matter how outlandish the story, mom had a way of stating something that was completely false, but you believed it. And so that, you know, that level of manipulation, that level of lying, the lack of empathy, the wanting mm -hmm. attention, uh, wanting attention can also be a little bit of narcissism. Um, those are all consistent though with antisocial personality disorder. Now, you know, wow. can you diagnose someone after they passed away? No, and I shouldn't be diagnosing either because I'm not a clinician, but you know, it's kind of yeah. like the shoe fits. So, you well, know, she might have had that. At the very least, it gives you a, a range of, of topics to think about. But what I'm curious about, and I think that this Jethro really gets to what we try to do on this podcast is you've got this really compelling personal experience that you're sharing with the world. And it quite literally helped shape your professional career. So mm -hmm. as an expert in child identity theft, I'm, I'm curious to know what conclusions have you drawn from this? What are what are things that parents, and I, I recognize the irony of that question, but what are things that parents should be thinking about in terms of protecting their own children? Or if as you know, older children are listening to this, what should they be thinking about? So you know, if you're a parent, you can freeze your child's credit in most states now. Um, so that's something that you, of course, should consider. Now, if you're going to steal your child's identity, of course, you're not going to do that. And that's one of the challenges with all of these protective measures for, uh, you know, yeah. child identity theft is that it falls on the parents, you know, because right. the, the kid is a kid. And uh, But if you're, uh, you know, if you're 17, 18, 19 years old and you're thinking, well, this might have happened to me, get your credit report. So go to annualcreditreport.com. There you can get a free copy of your credit report from each of the three credit reporting agencies. Get all three because creditors are not required to report to all three bureaus. So if you just and, get one, you might miss the fraudulent account that's on another right. one. And that's, if I recall correctly, that's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion? Is that yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and then also, you know, if you are the parent of children and, you know, you're with your significant other, your spouse, and, you know, they have, you know, we have, all have different roles in families. And if that significant other, that spouse is not, or is the um, financial guru for the family, you know, they, they pay all the bills, they do all the investing, that sort of thing, that's fine but insist that you know what's going on. So see the tax returns, see the bank account statements, um, you know, see what's in your savings account, make sure you have access to that information, make sure you can see it. Because one thing I've found true in my research is that for parents who steal their children's identities, they've stolen their spouse's identity too in, in, in most instances. So you as a spouse or significant other, um, 
could be a victim in addition to your children. Well, you might also want to talk a little bit extant about uh, passwords to financial accounts, because I know that that was an issue when you were dealing with your investigation, your mom's estate. Um, <laughs> a bit of a challenge, right? It was. So before my mom passed away, uh, I should back up a little bit further. So my mom did everything online with finances. And at that point in 2013, my dad didn't know how to really run a computer. You know, he could use the one at work to enter information, but to open up the laptop and get on the internet and do financial things, my dad just didn't have an interest in that, didn't, didn't feel comfortable with computers. And I, hindsight being 2020, I think mom moved all of the financial matters online as an extra way to keep my dad out. And before she passed away, um, dad was asking her, about the accounts, you know, where were the accounts? What were the passwords? And she gave them to us, but they were mismatched. So, you know, was that intentional? Was it not intentional? Because again, she was on morphine and allotted when, um, you know, she was near the end, you know, could it have been an honest mistake due to the medication she was on or was it intentional? You know, that could be debated, but it was like a needle in the haystack or, um, you know, putting pieces of a puzzle together where I'd find the account and I'd find the, you know, she, she gave us the login credentials, but the username and the password never matched. Mm. And so I, I, I just had to keep trying. And finally I would, you know, get the right one, but yeah, she, she mixed them up. <laughs> That's just, it's crazy. So, you know, had my dad, been trying to do that on his own, he would have just gotten frustrated and quit because he has a very low frustration tolerance for technology. Um, but, you know, with me handling it, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm finding this out. I am not letting this go. And I just kept at it and kept at it. And, you know, finally, finally was able to find where those accounts were and what was in them. Wow. Yeah. And so was there money saved anywhere or were you just in a huge pile of debt? I mean, that's if you're selling somebody's identity, the, hopefully you'd be like saving all this money and, and making yourself wealthy. But I think probably what's really happening is you're just losing all of the, all the, all the money because you run up so much credit. Well, so that's an interesting thing. So in, you know, investigating this and figuring out, you know, where money should have been that wasn't, there's approximately $200,000 that just vanished in the last two years of my mom's life. We don't know where it is. I can't find it. She had nothing to show for it. When she passed away, she uh, drove a 1999 Lincoln Town car. You know, So she wasn't buying new cars. She wasn't buying new jewelry. We don't know what happened to it. We found $5,000 in the checking account, which she had told dad there was $50 in there. It was 5,000, um, which was interesting. But I don't know what happened to all that money. Um, in terms of debt, mom wasn't paying the taxes, which is ironic given that she spent most of her career as a tax preparer. Um, she hadn't paid taxes for the majority of the 13 years that she and dad lived where they had been living. Um, dad almost lost the house. We found um, certified letters in a mailbox that she had at the UPS store in a different town. 13 certified letters um, that were in there. 
that said, hey, we're taking your house. And we had to get a tax attorney to fight that. We were successful with that, barely. Uh, but that, you know, dad was able to, to keep the house and farm and, you know, you know, at least there was that stability, but it was a really, really challenging time and a really unstable time, probably for the first year after she passed away. You know, dad didn't know which end was up, didn't know if he was going to be able to keep the house, didn't know what his financial standing was going to be. Um, so, yeah, re really challenging time from 2013 to 2014. Wow. It's an amazing story, Axton. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us. I, I, I admire the bravery it takes to really lay it all out like this. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, and I would, I would, I'm curious about what, what, what advice you would have for people who have been victims of identity theft and how to rebuild and get back on track. Sure. So um, the first thing you want to do is freeze your credit because that stops the identity thief from opening any new accounts in your name. So it, it kind of puts a lid on the damage so you can really start to work to untangle the mess. And untangling that mess often involves filing a police report and filing fraud affidavits with um, original creditors and collection agencies. It can be an uphill battle um, and it can be emotionally exhausting. And one thing I have found through my research with victims is that the most helpful resource, it's not law enforcement, it's not government agencies, you know, like the Federal Trade Commission that um, victims are encouraged to report to, it's mental health counselors. Mental health counselors, hands down, according to victims that I have uh, interviewed for my research, are the most helpful resource for victims. So don't be afraid to reach out and get some counseling to help you get through this process. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense though. I mean, particularly if, if it's a situation that requires empathy, it's good to have someone who's actually trained to be empathetic. Right. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's really, really cool. Actually, I do want to let you know that we'll put a link to your book in our show notes mm -hmm. uh, in my newsletter next week that'll go out. Um, I'll let people know. Uh, that we interviewed you and that they should read this because I think it's it's really a compelling story. Oh, well, thank you. No, my pleasure. Anything else, Jethro? No, I'm just impressed that you have the physical book in your hand because I know that's not, <laughs> your, not your style. So that's good. I know. And actually, it's traveled all around uh, Eastern Canada and uh, points yeah. beyond. So, Axton, Axton, that's give a, yourself that's some a credit for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely compelling. All right, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, more identity theft, I am sure, and the challenges of high tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones. Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this show. Please leave us a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends. We appreciate having you here, and we'll see you next week on the next episode of Cybertrack.
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.